CSN International presents To Every Man an Answer, the live apologetics program that equips you to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. If you have a Bible question or a question on the Christian faith, you can call us at 1-888-827-5276. Again, that's 1-888-ASK-CSN. Let's get things started. Here's today's host, Mike Kessler. Hi, and welcome to Tuesday's edition of To Every Man and Answer. Glad you've joined us, and uh, we always look forward to this every weekday afternoon at this time, getting together, just asking questions about God's Word, looking at God's Word together. Such a wonderful time that we get to spend with all of you each and every day. And again, if you've been reading your Bible, come across something you don't understand. Maybe uh, somebody's asked you a question and it's kind of difficult. Well, that's why we're here for you, to help you uh, make a good defense for your faith. Again, uh, Paul reminds us to contend earnestly for the faith. And uh, that's something I really believe is so important in these days that we're in, and also to have a good biblical worldview of what's going on, not what the um, not what the world tells you. So much different because we know that there's major change about to happen, and so being about our Father's business. Joining me today, special guest featured CSN speaker that comes on before to every man and answer about an hour, John Randall from Calvary Chapel, South Orange County. Hi, and welcome. Hi there, Mike. Great to see you, and uh, glad to be here with you. And I want to say happy Valentine's to all the CSN family today. Hope you know that Amen. you're loved. <laughs> and so we just want to encourage you to give us a call. That number to call again, 8888-ASK-CSN. Uh, the lines, we have a couple lines open, so if you call right now, you're assured to get on. And uh, again, 88 88 ask CSM. Real quickly before we go to the phones, John, where are you out on Sunday morning? What are you teaching on? Well, Sunday morning, we are currently in the gospel according to Matthew. We just looked at the temptation of Jesus and the best way to overcome temptation is to know the word of God. Jesus said, it is written three times, overcame the devil. It was uh, just an exciting chapter. And then on Wednesdays, we are currently in the book of Galatians, headed into the fourth chapter, Mike, just talking about the difference between a loving relationship versus a legal relationship with the Lord. And um, it's a good time in the word, really enjoying it. Amen. Well, it's good to good to have you with us today, John. Looking forward to answering some questions with you. Again, 8888-ASK-CSN's toll-free, and you're invited to call right now. Let's go to the phones. We have Bonnie on the line in Montana. Hi and welcome. Hello. I appreciate your taking my call. I'm curious, uh, in Matthew, when they're doing Jesus's genealogy, and it starts at Abraham and goes to, you know, Jesus, uh, Joseph and Mary. Then it goes like from Abraham, the 14th generation, such and such happened. And after that, the 14th generation, I think that was David. And then the 14th generation after that, I think, was in Jesus' uh, ascension. Anyway, has anybody looked into, has anything significant happened from the 14th generation after Jesus' ascension and then the 14th generation after that, it, has anything significant happened in those 14th generations? Or has anybody looked into that? Yeah, John, your thoughts. 
Well, it's a really good question. I personally have not looked into that. I have definitely looked into the genealogies of Jesus, both recorded in uh, Matthew's gospel as well as Luke's gospel. And when you look at those genealogies and you compare them, you'll see that, well, there is a difference. And the reason is you find that Matthew traces the genealogy from Jesus to Abraham and Luke traces the genealogy from Jesus to Adam. But there's difference. One is, one is Joseph's genealogy and the other is the genealogy through Mary. In order for Jesus to be the Messiah, just a little background, Bonnie, you probably know this on the genealogies, but the, in order for him to be the Messiah, he had to be a son of Abraham. He had to be a son of David and he also had to be the son of God. And when you look at Joseph's lineage from Abraham to Jesus, you'll see that Jesus did have a right to the throne in one respect. But then when you come to Luke's gospel and you see Mary's genealogy, you'll see that he had the legal right to the throne through, uh, I believe it was Solomon's other son, whose name was Nathan. One son was cursed on one side. This son was accepted. Either way, you find that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. But concerning the 14th generation, um, Mike, I'm not really, I haven't really gone into to detail about that myself specifically. Yeah, the, the, the verse in question is Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. And here we find three 14 uh, times uh, uh, in which generations uh, until the coming of the Messiah. Now, I believe that it's not by accident. I do believe that God has order in which he does. Seven in the Bible is the number of completion. And it is interesting that every 14 generations, God accomplished something, I believe, fairly uh, fairly um, substantial. Now, it says, from Abraham to David are 14 generations. God just singled Abraham out and said, of you, I'm going to make a great nation. So from him to David, who would then be one that would reign on the throne forever, the Bible says as well, and that Jesus was the descendant of David, the uh, lion of the tribe of Judah. We find those 14 generations. Then from there we find from David to the captivity of Babylon. This is when they were carried away because of their rebellion. And we remember Daniel was really heartbroken. He, you know, he knew all the promises that God had made concerning the nation of Israel, uh, concerning Messiah. And yet he said, I don't see how these saints can be now. It's so, so lost. And so God gave him that revelation and again, we find there in Daniel chapter 9 that from the time the command goes forth to the time of the coming of the prince will be 69 seven-year periods of time. Now, the Babylonian calendar was predicated upon a 360-day year. So if you do the math, you find that Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. It was their day of salvation on April 6, 32 A.D. Now, again, all this was divided up to show that God was working with the nation of Israel. It wasn't, oopsie, old man, helter-skelter. No, we find that it is precise every, every two times seven generation from Abraham to the coming of the Messiah was 
two times seven generations. So I look at it as, as uh, just one of the fingerprints of God to say that these things that happened weren't by accident, but they were by divine allotment that God allowed it to happen. John, any other thoughts? Well, I just think it's amazing that Matthew, especially in his uh, genealogy, you know, he, he lists the high points. He doesn't list e- list every single name, but but he's he's the point of the way in which he's documenting is he's trying to get it from you know to prove that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of 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 David because that was something that was promised. You know, Abraham was promised in the Abrahamic covenant that one of his descendants would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And then also David was promised there that there would be one who would come from his line that would sit upon the throne and he would reign forever and ever his kingdom. There would be no end. And so, uh, you know, sometimes we have a tendency, Mike, to skip over genealogies because, hey, we don't even know how to pronounce all the names. Are we saying it correctly? Some people don't know. But there is something in those genealogies, uh, Bonnie, if we'll just take time. And I appreciate you're uh, being a student of the Bible and really trying to find out what else is there. And there's things that you can learn from genealogies. So it would appear being seven is a, a number of completion in the Bible. Now, again, we want to be careful. We don't want to get into what's called numerology. But we do know that God uses sometimes these numbers to show us his purpose. We know that God created the earth in six days, rested on the seventh. We find seven notes in a scale. Then you go to upper or lower scale. You find seven days in a week. You find there's an order of things. And again, I believe that this is to show us there was an order. These things were marked. And uh, so I hope that helps, Bonnie. Well, I'm just curious if anything had been significant since Jesus' time, but I guess not really. I appreciate your answer very much. Thank you. Well, Bonnie, stay in line. We'll send you out some books, some DVDs, and the movie Jesus. I think you'll really enjoy. If you get any more questions, we're here for you. Call us. Let's go to Sam, Des Moines, Iowa, from yesterday. Thank you, Sam, for calling back. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, sir. Thank you for having me back on. All right. Uh, so uh, I think it's finished, uh, I guess, my, my background. So at least gives you more an idea to to make, give me some sort of godly advice. Um, so the question I really had was, uh, so my background story is like I've, I've dated many uh, Christians up until I was Thursday, a lot of Christian women, and a lot of them were, unfortunately, just you could not tell if they were Christians or not because they were so secular to the world. And I mean, these are people that I've, I've met in church and through just family friends as well. And one or another, I just figured I was cursed in relationships. And then I, I finally met someone who was a pastor's wife, and it, it was good for a year, and we were going towards uh, marriage. And then I guess God had just told her maybe it's not the right one. So I went to depression for a while, but I, uh, you know, I continued to follow the Lord. And I went on a mission trip to, to give up Bibles and share the Gospels with uh, the people back in my home country in Cambodia. And that's where I met my wife. And she wasn't a believer then, but uh, uh, when we met, we didn't talk for a while, and I finally uh, called her, and uh, we started talking, and then it got serious, and I prayed about the relationships, and I asked my uh, family and friends and pastors to, to share them about our relationship, and uh, to see if they were would, would give me their blessings or what they thought about their relationship, and they didn't really get any answers that would lead me us afraid to think that it's not from God. So, uh, so that was a good thing. And then the other thing is that, 
the girl that I met, she was from my parents' homeland, and they were from the same village. And and then the, the, our parents and her parents knew each other before the Khmer Rouge War, so they were okay with us getting married. And shit, they really liked her. And like I said, I had the approvals from family and from a family and friends who were believers. So I felt like the relationship was with God sent. And and unfortunately, like I said, I, I, she's not a believer. But uh, she respected my faith, and she never attempted to scare me away from Christ. And she was really open to hearing the gospel, and she'd always ask questions. So I, I just felt like, you know, this maybe this is the one. And we never did anything in Now, like I said, we were just, we were really conservative people, and uh, so and that sort of with me sharing the, more and more of the gospel tour sort of steered her away from Buddhism in a way. And uh, we got married in 2008 and unfortunately we're still waiting for her to get to America. And unfortunately, you know, people who do it illegally seem to get into the country <laughs> faster than uh, people who are doing it the, the, the right way. Um, but anyway, so my question is, could something like this be, be God sent since uh, from what I've read in the Bible, like Boaz, Ruth, uh, her first husband, um, I, don't think that she was a believer before and with Jacob and Rachel. And I don't think Rachel was a believer since she had stole the, her, her uh, father's uh, idols and stuff like that. And I know right. David had married uh, somebody uh, was given a marriage to someone who wasn't a believer as well. And I'm not saying, you know, Christians should uh, yield themselves with another non-believer, but I'm just saying, I just felt like God never really gave me an, uh, like a, Big question. No, no, this is not the one. It was, it was more like an approval that you know maybe this girl needs to know Christ, and so does her family. And hopefully, it brings my family that are not believers to know back in, in my home country. Well, yeah, it's a good it's a good question to ask, Sam. And I just want to comment on it. I want to say, um, um, first of all, I wouldn't. I want to just caution you on using an Old Testament passage that you were referring as a proof text for uh, marrying somebody who is a non-believer. Under the New Covenant, you want to go to what the Bible says there in uh, 1 Corinthians, and um, actually 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where we are warned, Paul said it very clearly, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? I mean, obviously now you are married, so that that, that settles that you are married. But I would I would never encourage anybody listening to marry a non-believer. I, I don't, I think that is not what God has said and we're not called to be missionary dating or missionary marrying for that matter. And maybe your wife will come to Christ and that's what we should pray for. But, um, uh, but I would say anybody considering being married, uh, Sam, um, you, you, it doesn't necessarily matter so much how I feel, but as believers in Christ, I want to go by what God's word says. So the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. It says, which would in, imply, don't, don't be married to a non-believer. Now you are, so hey, pray for your wife and pray that she gets saved. And I'm glad she's not opposed to the gospel. Um, but that's not the way you want to start out, uh, marrying a non-believer. So if you're listening today, maybe you think, man, I really want to be married and I'd love to have a relationship. I would say, um, don't compromise, uh, in any way. God knows your need and God will provide. And um, I think, Sam, your uh, description of what you've said is more the exception to uh, rather than the rule. And I would caution anybody who's considering being married or entering into a relationship with someone who's not a believer. Because here's the thing. You want to be one in Christ. You want to be one. And so the, the thing that you have in common more than anything else as a believer is Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing. And so um, uh, that would be my my words to anybody listening. Sam, you are married. And so you need to pray for your wife that she'll get saved. 
and eventually make it to the United States so that you can actually be husband and wife in the country. But I, w- I would caution anybody thinking about going into a relationship with somebody who's a non-believer and say that's not a good idea based on Scripture. And I think that's important. Mike? Oh, I'm sorry. I can't hear you, Mike, on the other side. I might be muted. Are you there, bro? Well, he's not there. But uh got a little technical difficulties over there on your side. But um, anyway, Sam, I appreciate your call, brother. I hope that helps you. And, um, you know, uh, we'll be praying for your wife that she'll come to know Jesus uh, in the days ahead. And so really appreciate you calling. And if you stay on the line, we'd love to send you some things. Hey, maybe we could send you a DVD that your uh, maybe your wife could see. It's on the life of Jesus. Yeah. And, and, and we want to do that. You know, uh, again, you don't want to marry a non-believer. I don't care how cute they are, how sweet they are. The problem is they have a different ethic. They live for a different reason. You know, we say that sometimes, what's your purpose for living? Well, if you're born again, it's to honor Christ. To live as Christ, die as gain, Paul says. But if you're not a believer, you're living for yourself. Well, it won't be long before that polarization of a person living for themselves and you living for Christ is going to come to, going to come to, uh, an impasse. And that's not good. That's why the Bible says not to be unequally yoked together with non-believers. And so, Sam, again, I would just caution you. Time is, is, uh, a revealer of many things. I would, I would always encourage everybody not to rush into things because oftentimes haste Makes waste, as the old saying goes. Sam, stay online. We'll get you fixed up with a couple of books, a couple of DVDs, okay? Copy. Thank you, sir. God bless you, and thanks so much for the call. If you need us, we're here for you. Let's go to Bob, Washington. Hi, welcome. Thank you for taking my call. Um, this question regards genealogy on Matthew also. I understand the connection between Mary uh, and the genealogy process. What I'm trying to connect is if the Holy Spirit um, was involved in the inception of Jesus, how does Joseph's line connect to that? Okay, John, your thoughts. Well, in Matthew, it's a great question, Bob. And um, in Matthew, we trace Jesus's line through Joseph, his legal father, not his physical father. We know who his father was. You can go back to Genesis in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, when the Bible talks about the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The woman doesn't carry the seed. Uh, the man does. So it's, it's referring to a virgin birth. So legally... Joseph being his earthly father, his legal guardian, um, that is how he connected to the line of David through Solomon. But there is a problem. If you go through that lineage um, with Joseph, he, he couldn't be the heir to the throne even through the genealogy because if you go back to um, the son of Solomon, there was a curse that was placed on one of Solomon's sons whose name was Jeconiah. And Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 24 through 30 says, of the kings of Israel, including Jeconiah, that none of his seed would sit upon the throne forever. So you think, oh no, what are we going to do? How is Jesus going to be able to get to the throne? Well, all you have to do is go over to the genealogy that you find that um, is recorded there in Luke's gospel. And you find that as you trace that genealogy through David's other son, whose name was Nathan, Mary was also a descendant of Abraham and David through a different son. So what does it all mean? 
um, Jesus, being a son of David through Nathan, David's other son, he would have the right to rule and reign upon the throne. So with the genealogy of Christ alone, I mean, he, he is connected through his legal father, Abraham, to David, of course, to Jesus. But then you go to Luke's gospel and it comes through Mary's line. And he is, he is the only one who can be the one to reign forever and ever. Hope that helps you, Bob. Hope that helps, Bob. It does. It's a great explanation. Thank you so very much. You got it. Well, God bless you. Thanks so much for the call. Stay in line. We'll send you out a couple of books, a couple of DVDs. With that, we'll go to David, Las Vegas. Hi and welcome. Hello. God bless Hi. you, pastors. Hi. So my question is actually coming from my best friend, Rebecca Mahale, who lives in Australia. But she's a listener, but she can't call because of the different country. So the question she has is um, we've we've heard pastors preach from the pulpit that if a person gets saved, right, and then they live in a continual state of a backslidden state, that and if they don't get it right, or <laughs> that they'll uh, that God will eventually run out of patience and take them home because they're being a nuisance here on the earth. And they use First Corinthians chapter five verse five. And we, we're having a hard time with that one. We just wanted to get your perspective on it. Uh, thank you. <laughs> That's the question. All right. All right, John, your thoughts. Well, I appreciate the question, David. I think it's important. And for all of our listeners here in the CSN family who are Bible students, you love the Word of God, um, that you always read Scripture in its proper context. You want to read the scriptures before. You want to read the scriptures after. You want to know who is writing to who so that you get a clear understanding. Who's Paul writing to? Why is he writing these things? Lest you take a passage of scripture out of its context and make it say something that it was never intended to say. Well, David, when we look, and your friend out there in Australia down under, when you look here at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing to a church that had every spiritual gift in operation. However, they were abusing those gifts gifts, and they had gotten so carnal in their practice that they were allowing sexual sin into the church, and the leadership within the church was saying, it's fine, we approve, no big deal, God's gracious. They were aware of it. And so what Paul does in this letter of correction, and specifically in chapter 5, he is exhorting them, saying, how can you be proud of the fact that you are tolerating and welcoming and even applauding sin? He said, what you're doing isn't right. And what he exhorts them to do is turn such a one, and passage that you referred to, turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What Paul is saying is you need to turn him out of the church. You need to break fellowship because he's not repenting. And you need to do that so that he will repent and come back to the fellowship and be restored for the destruction of his flesh. He's living after the flesh. He's in sexual immorality. He's saying you need to turn him out so that he'll repent and come back. The, it doesn't say that God's going to, you know, the, the way that uh, you mentioned how it was interpreted. He's talking about an individual here who needs to be turned over so that he'll come back. And the great news is, David, when you read the second letter, the second Corinthians, the follow-up letter, it actually worked. The man repented. He returned to the Lord. And then Paul said, you need to bring him back in and restore him. He repented. Pastor Mike? And uh, amen. And that's one of the things that we want to uh, do is realizing that God's a merciful God. Mm-hmm. But as an example with Saul, you know, if you want to be in rebellion to God, then God will let you go that way. 
I believe what we find there on the on the passage in in Corinthians, the one that you're asking about, uh, five five, where uh, God can put things, and I believe this is why we pray for people who have gone astray, that God will put things in their life to cause them to call upon the Lord. I think a lot of times people think, well, you know, I can do my own thing now. I'm, you know, but, you know, I, I really believe that that prodding of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible says God will forgive all sins of man except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian and you're in rebellion to God, and we find him mentioned in the Bible, and certainly the whole book of Jude is about this exact topic. Uh, what God does things to cause them to repent, but if they will not repent, if they continue to blaspheme, reject the Holy Spirit, uh, they'll die in their sins. It's very clear if we read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, those that practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He wrote this to churches. He didn't write it to, uh, uh, you know, bars and things like that. He said, don't be deceived. Evidently, there's deception in those days, just like there is today, that, hey, once I slip Jesus in my pocket, I can do whatever I want. I'm going to heaven. Hey, no big deal. Well, I believe that if you're really born again, God will do things. But if that person continues to rebel against what God uh, wants for them, uh, and they die in that rebellious state, I think this is where that verse He'll forgive all sins except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about such a fella in chapter 24 of the book of Matthew. He said that this guy says, my Lord delays his coming. He acknowledges a relationship with his Lord. My Lord delays his coming. The Bible says he begins to eat and drink with the drunken. He beats his fellow man. He said, the Lord of that servant. Now, again, God isn't the Lord of every servant. That's why we become born again. The Lord of that servant will come when he's not expecting him, probably because he's drunk. And the Bible says he'll get his portion where the hypocrites, where there's weeping of gnashing of teeth. That is not talking about, oh, well, he just lost his rewards in heaven. No, he lost the whole enchilada. Read it. It does not say, and he lost his rewards, but his soul was saved. That does not say that. So if a person wants to be in rebellion to God, I believe God, just like that shepherd that looks for the uh, the, uh, the one out of the 99 that's caught in the thicket, uh, but if that person doesn't want to go, I think they can they can end up in that way. God will do things. The Bible says he chastises those that he loves. And why is that? To cause us to straighten up. That's why parents correct their children. But if children do not want to correct, then this is a real problem. And my prayer is for people that are living on the fence that way, that they'll wake up before it's too late. If you are 65 or older, you know this. It's really frustrating to deal with out-of-pocket medical expenses, just watching your hard-earned dollars flying out the window. Well, here's something that can really help, and it's worth taking a minute to look into. MediShare as a new option. It's called MediShare 65+. Plus. And MediShare is a community of Christians who share each other's health care bills. It really is a community, too. People encourage and pray for each other. 
MediShare 65 Plus is a low-cost option for those with Medicare Parts A and B, and it fills in the gaps where Medicare stops. It's a great way to fight inflation, too. You can lock in one low monthly price for up to 10 years, and you can use your Medicare-approved doctor, and you also get telehealth 24-7 service, so you don't have to leave your home for the little stuff. Very worth looking into, and it's so easy to find out why people rave about the customer service at MediShare. They're easy to talk to. Call 833-90-SHARE. That's 833-90-SHARE. 833-90-SHARE. Does the Bible seem too big, complicated, and overwhelming? There's a free Bible resource that's been around for more than 25 years and is used and trusted by millions worldwide. The Enduring Word Bible Commentary by David Guzik is a clear and simple way for everyday Christians and even seasoned Bible teachers to study God's Word. David's commentary not only breaks down the entire Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, it also provides helpful quotes from well-known Bible expositors throughout history. The commentary has also been translated into many languages, including Spanish, Arabic, Chinese, and more. Find the Enduring Word Bible Commentary as well as a free downloadable ebook called The King's Kingdom, a deeper look at the Sermon on the Mount by David Guzik at EnduringWord.com forward slash CSN. That's EnduringWord.com forward slash CSN. Turning hearts to heaven. CSN International. Every man I answer here on this Tuesday afternoon with John Randall. I'm your host, Mike Kessler, and we're going to go right back to the phones. We have, again, David on the line, uh, finishing up that last question. David, are you still with us? Yes, I am, sir. Yes, I am. Thank you. Well, I hope that answered it for you. And again, uh, we want to send you out some books and DVDs. But uh, God's not trying to kill people. He's trying to get them to repent. And... Um, uh, the you know the Bible talks about no chastisement at the time is of any joy, but in the long run it will bring forth God's desired purpose. That's that's what we want, and I, I'm very grateful of that. Now, if you want to be a rebellious little brat, um, you, you see, here's here's very quickly. Let's look at something here. What do people think heaven is? If you think heaven is an everlasting kegger on the back of my old Ford truck with my dog blue and a couple of my drunk buddies, hey, I don't know where you got that concept of heaven, but that ain't what heaven is. Heaven is a place where God is worshipped forever. We're gathered around the throne with the other saints. If you don't want to be in the presence of other saints, if you don't want to be around things of God, if you don't want to hear about Jesus, no matter what you call yourself, Christian, backslidden Christian, worldly person, it ain't going to be heaven for you. So I think the real question is, what do you think heaven is, and would you be at home there? So the idea then is to get a person by God's divine, omnipotent love to cause a person to repent so that he will enjoy the things of God again. When we realize how temporal this life really is. So God's heart is to cause us to be about his business. And if we want to rebel, 
Well, that's where the problem will come. David, stay in line. Hope that answers it for you. Got a couple of books, a couple of DVDs, the movie Jesus. We'll get that out to you, okay? Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. God bless you. You guys have a wonderful day. You too. Blessings to you. Let's go to Cynthia, Las Vegas as well. Hi and welcome. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. How can we help? So I am wondering about two different scriptures that I have found in the Bible, uh, one being Galatians 1, 6 through 7, and then Revelation uh, 22, I believe, 18, that talk about different teachings or, or adding to the Bible. And my question is, is that referring to other churches that have their own books that they're adding? And if so... Is that talking negatively on the, the leaders of those churches or the entire church? No, I believe they're in a lot of trouble. Uh, there's just no way around it. When you have added to God's Word. Now, I believe that verse there in Revelation, the very end of the book, where it talks about adding or taking away from this book, I believe it's really speaking of the book of Revelation. However, everything in Revelation you will find in the rest of the Bible. Now, again, when Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, first and the last, and then the Mormons say, Satan and Jesus are brothers, man, you've got to, you've added to God's word, and God will add to them the plagues of the book. Now, I'm not condemning Mormons, because I realize people believe oftentimes they were raised a certain way. But somewhere in the hierarchy of these people, they know what is right, what is wrong, that they know that they've added. Same way with the Jehovah's Witnesses. They came out with a revised New World Version in 2013 with 10% less words than the 2012 version. What's wrong with that? Well, if we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, as Jesus said, where do they get off taking away 10% of the words? So when we begin to realize that they add and take away as they feel like it. Now, again, the Book of Mormon does not have that you're going to be a God yourself someday in it. The Book of Mormon does not say that Adam is God. The Book of Mormon doesn't say that if you're sealed in the temple for time and eternity, you'll be married in eternity. doesn't say that. All these unusual doctrines, as an example, were added in after the Book of Mormon. You have the uh, Book of Abraham, Journal of Discourses, um, uh, the list goes on and on of, of their added inspired scripture. But this is where it gets crazier and crazier. Satan and Jesus are brothers, not in the Book of Mormon. So when we understand that, that they not only added to God's word by bringing in the Book of Mormon, but then they add to their own stuff as well. Or they just simply rewrite the Bible to suit their own belief. And these are where I believe so many of the problems today are. When Jesus said, we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that the scripture was given to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And yet you have these Johnny-come-latelys. Again, you, you've got Brigham Young, or excuse me, Joseph Smith, 1830, copying down the the Book of Mormon, as he, so to speak, translates it from these gold plates. Well, where did you get 16th century King James English in 1830? They didn't talk like that in 1830 in the United States. But I guess if you're going to make up another Bible, you want to make it sound like the Bible. 
And of course, the King James Bible was written in 1611. And so that's why we have the these and the thous and all those kinds of things. But to have that in the Book of Mormon written in 1830, you got to say, how does this work? I guess maybe the angel that helped him was from the 16th century, maybe. I don't know. Things that make you go, hmm. So these are the things that I believe are are of concern, Cynthia. And again, when they add to God's Word and it changes the Bible, we know that what they're adding is wrong. When they say that, when you pray with a Mormon, for instance, and they say, Oh, Father, and we think, you know, hey, well, they're using the same words we're using, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, salvation. Oh, no, completely, completely different definitions. When a Mormon prays to God, Father, they're praying to Adam, the one that ate of the fruit in the garden and fell. That is not the Bible God. In fact, in Isaiah 44, it says, I am God alone, and besides me, there is no other. Yet they teach that you're going to be a God yourself of your own planet. That's not in the Bible. That's not even in the Book of Mormon. So there's some real problems here when we really look at people that take willy-nilly adding to God's Word because they keep adding to God's Word. And that's where I believe these problems are. Well, they're, they're further revelations. No, they're further heresies, because that's why the Bible was delivered. That's why the Word of God was delivered once for all for the saints. John, your thoughts? Well, I just want to comment, Cynthia, on the passage that you referred to there in Galatians in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where Paul said, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be, and this word is significant, accursed. Paul says it again, as we've said before, I say it again. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you receive, let him be accursed. That is the strongest word used in the Greek language. It's the word anathema. Let him be cut off. Uh, and, and this is a strong word. Yeah. And it's such a strong word. Paul's saying, if you, if you alter this gospel, and you change the the way of salvation through your own means or through your own effort or through some other book, um, there's a strong warning. There's an accursed that's placed upon them. And so, yes, it does reflect, I think in, in answering your question too, Cynthia, it does reflect on the leadership within that so-called church or place of gathering to contradict Scripture and to preach something else that the Bible doesn't preach. And the Bible only has strong warning for anybody who would alter God's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2 also refers to this. Moses gave a warning concerning the Old Testament and the law. And then, of course, as was mentioned, Revelation 22 and Galatians 1.8. So it's not a good idea to change God's Word, and there's no need to, because it stands forever. Hope that helps. Quick question, just to follow up on that. So are are you thinking the followers are also in trouble or just the leaders? I believe every person is under obligation to find out what they believe and why they believe it. I never want to say, well, this is what my denomination believes, and so I just accept it willy-nilly. No, no, no. The Bible says, "Study study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman not to be ashamed. Yes, I believe the people that are teaching this stuff are going to endure a harder harder judgment. But if you believe Satan and Jesus are brothers, the Bible says you're believing in the wrong Jesus. There is no salvation. You're doomed to hell. No, you stay in your sins. 
Why? Because there's a different Jesus. We have to be very careful. That's why the Bible says, John, we talked about this often, but to earnestly contend for the faith. Why do you think the the early Christians were being martyred for their relationship with God? Was it because they were silent that, oh, well, you just believe if that's your reality, baby, if that's your Jesus, go for it. No, they were standing up saying, no, that's not right. Caesar's not God. God is God. And it cost them their life. But see, we have to be honest. We have to tell people the truth. And truth oftentimes is not convenient. And oftentimes it's interpreted as not being loving. Well, you don't love. Yes, if I didn't care, I could just say, hey, baby, I love you, man. Valentine's Day, yeah. I could just say I love you and let you stay in your lost condition, believing in a Jesus that will never save you because he's a half-brother of Lucifer. Or I can say, no, that's wrong. As a matter of fact, buddy, I do love you enough to tell you you're on the wrong road. And this is one of the great problems that we find today. Because people believe in religion, not Jesus Christ. God's only son, John 3.16. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. Not one of many like Middle Eastern religions. Well, I'm Jesus, you're Jesus, we're all Jesuses. You know, whether it's Buddha, Mohammed, Jesus, you know, uh, uh, yeah, they were all really great prophets. Yeah, yeah, that's what they were. Well, did you ever look at what Jesus said? Either Jesus is God or he's, he's not a good, good prophet. He's not a good anything. He said, no one comes to the Father except through him. John 14, 6. Here's the problem. If Jesus is a good teacher and he's saying that he is God, and you reject that, and there's no other way to God, the Father, except through Jesus Christ, then Jesus is either a liar or he is who he says he is, and all the other religions of the world are bogus. Now, I didn't say that. Jesus said that. And we have to look at then, what does the Bible really have to say about who God is? And again, when you get into these books, well, if I get sealed in the temple, I'm a Mormon. I, I get sealed to, to my, my, uh, my wife. Uh, I'm going to progress on through if I do my tithing and all the uh, temple rituals, all these things. I'm going to become a God myself someday. And I'm going to have my own planet with my own spirit babies and all this kind of stuff. No, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. They have added to God's word. And we have to be careful of that. Because it isn't just according to them when they come to your, well, have you heard another gospel when Jesus came to the Americas? Oh, no, 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 no. No, that, that, that's not it. It's where you become God. You, through temporal rituals and being married in the temple, you become God. You will have your own planet someday. Again, Isaiah 44, I am God, God alone besides me. There is no other. Well, that conflicts with what Mormonism teaches. Added books to God's Word. And that modifies the book of Revelation, which is prohibited. No excuse for it. So, again, not standing up for church dogma. Well, my church believes this, and so therefore I believe this. No, what do you believe? How did you come to the conclusions you've come to? 
Where have you placed the Bible in regards to these other, so to speak, religious books that are in the world? Hope that helps. Thank you. I appreciate it. Cynthia, stay on the line. Send you out some books, some DVDs, and I'll send you out a couple little books on Mormonism as well. I think you'll find those to be most enlightening and also so helpful when we share with people of other faiths. I love people. I love Mormons. I love everybody. If I didn't, I wouldn't be doing this. I, you know, go lay on a beach, go, go skiing, go do something. But the reason why is because John, myself, people on CSN were concerned about people's eternal destiny. And when you say you're on the wrong road, well, that's not loving. Well, I suppose when Jesus turned the tables of the money changers over and whipped them with a, with a, with a whip, my house should be called a house of prayer. You made it a den of thieves. Probably wasn't very loving either, but that's what he did. See, we've got to stand up for what's right. And we can't be adding to the Word of God. Stay on the line. Cynthia Sinyas books, DVDs, the movie Jesus. I think you'll enjoy it. Let's go to Albert, Los Angeles. I welcome. Good afternoon. How may Can we you help? hear me? We got you, Albert. Um, hi, good afternoon. What is your perspective on replacement theology? I think there's so many problems with it. You have to wrangle Scripture into the stratosphere to even have it make any sense, and even that, it doesn't. Um, John, your thoughts? Well, replacement theology, Albert, is also known as supersessionism, which basically teaches that all of the promises and blessings and covenants, really, that God made with the nation of Israel— um, because of Israel's disobedience towards God, that all of those promises and blessings are now for the church. We have replaced Israel. It is a false teaching. It is not a biblical teaching. Um, and the reason why I would say that is because the covenants that God made with Israel, first of all, they were everlasting. Um, and God is going to fulfill his part of the covenant, even if they don't keep their own. And so God, God hasn't replaced Israel. He's not done with them. And the amazing thing is, I think what's, what's really important to point out and why this, this view is so faulty is so many of the advocates of replacement theology never lived to see the nation of Israel come back together as a nation. They were displaced for 1,900 years. And so for everybody, they thought, well, God's done with them. I mean, they've been out of the land for 1,900 years. However, in the 20th century, the Lord brought them back in accordance with the word of God, brought them back to the land and fulfilled the promises. And if he brought them back into the land when everybody said he wasn't going to, Albert, he's going to fulfill the rest of the promises he made to Israel. He is not done with them. He has a plan and a purpose for them, and he's going to draw them back in. The Bible tells us that during the tribulation period, God's going to one of the one of the reasons for the tribulation period, in addition to judging a Christ-rejecting world, is to draw the nation of Israel back to her Messiah. And so God's not done with Israel because he would have to go back on his word. And he won't do that because he's not a liar. He's not like us. He he says it, he means it, he's going to fulfill it. And so it's an everlasting covenant, and we here at CSN, I know Calvary's and Pastor Mike and myself, we wholeheartedly um, are opposed to replacement theology because God has a plan for Israel. So I hope that uh, hope that helps, Albert. Yeah, you know it it it's difficult to um, uh, understand uh, from uh, in, uh, from a scriptural standpoint because terminology changes throughout di- different dispensations. Uh, obviously, the the one thought is 
the body of Christ replaced the nation of Israel. The second perspective was the body of Christ expanded the nation of Israel. And then the, the third perspective, the body of Christ is distinctively different from the nation of Israel. I always viewed it as uh, uh, not in replacement, but that Israel is like the older brother to us. And after rejecting the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, in the Old Testament, the, uh, the Synoptic Gospels, and the um, uh, uh, the uh, last book, uh, that uh, they are, are they were kind of been sent to their room, and uh, the body of Christ is now uh, being fulfilled in the this time of a dispensation of grace. But God didn't reject them at all, and they will return. Uh, as uh, the the older brothers to us, and I would say, oh, go ahead, Pastor Mike. Well, what I was going to say is, when you when you understand that you would not be able to make any sense of Ezekiel chapter, uh, um, excuse me, Daniel chapter nine, for instance, or Revelation, where it talks about the third temple being rebuilt, or the hundred and forty four thousand Jews in Revelation chapter seven. None of these passages make any sense in replacement theology. None of them. Because, again, God was done with the nation of Israel, according to them. And what's going to happen now is we're just going to go along, go along, and pretty soon we're just going to usher in Jesus Christ. No, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says there's going to be a man come on the world scene looking like the world's Savior, I'm worried for those in in the replacement theology that they may be welcoming in the Antichrist rather than Jesus Christ. Because, again, when you void all the prophecies concerning the nation of Israel, including Jesus himself in, in Luke chapter 21, that Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles till the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. What a ridiculous prophecy that Jesus made. Because it was under Roman control when he made that. Then, in 70 AD, when Titus, a Roman general, came in, leveled the city of Jerusalem, burned it with fire. Now, that prophecy that Jesus made will never come to pass. Or will it? Matthew Henry, in 1700, he writes concerning the nation of Israel and the prophecies thereof in the future. It appears that the nation of Israel will become a nation again. However, I don't see how that could ever be. In 1948, in a day, and the Bible says that in a verse, he says, who has ever heard of such a thing, a nation born in a day? Israel was born again in May 1948. And it's amazing that we find this tiny nation of Israel now that gains so much of the world's focus and will continue to do so I believe clear to the time that Jesus comes back and then on for, for the rest of that thousand year reign, we're finding that this idea of replacement theology, I believe they're going to be welcoming in the Antichrist, not Jesus Christ. And again, I told people this, believe wrong, you live wrong. And again, those prophecies are very clear in Revelation. Well, that all happened in 70 AD. Oh, really? Did every living thing in the sea die in 70 AD? Well, that's metaphorically speaking. The Bible says all the grasses are burned up. Well, that's metaphorically speaking. Well, you won't be able to take a mark on your, you won't be a buy or sell unless you have your name on your hand or on your forehead. Well, that's metaphorically speaking. Well, did Jesus die on the cross? Well, that's metaphorically. Pretty soon the whole Bible turns to feathers. 
Yes, when the Bible talks about uh, things that are metaphorical, a beast with seven heads and ten horns, yeah, that's metaphorical. But when it says every living thing in the sea dies, that's not metaphorical. That's dead-on prophecy. And this is one of the great problems. Anything they don't like in replacement theology, they whisk it away and just say, oh, well, that's metaphorically speaking. Well, friends, there's nothing that will mess you up faster in biblical theology than to write off these prophecies of God, even though they seem to be so outlandish, like, as an example, one quarter of the world's population dies in the first couple of horsemen that are released on the earth, Revelation chapter 6, but I believe every word of it. And that's going to be two billion people. People are going, oh, oh, this this earthquake in Afghan and Syria, oh, it's, it's pressing 50,000 people now. Yes, it's terrible. It pales compared to the two billion people that will die. Hope that helps. Very good. Very good answers. Well, stay on the line, Albert. We'll send you out a couple books, a couple of DVDs I think you'll enjoy. With that, we'll go to Denise in Montana. Hi, and welcome. Hello, pastors. How are you? Good. How may we help? Um, I was calling regarding Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7, where Isaiah sees the um, vision of God and the um, seraphim brings the live coal and touches his lips and his iniquity is removed. And then I was wondering about in Hebrews 9.22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Good question. Your thoughts? All right. Well, I think what you find there is, you know, in the Old Testament, God gave them a sacrificial system, but the sacrificial system could only cover sin. It could not remove sin. And so they were waiting for the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. So Isaiah's sins were covered. He was forgiven, um, but his sins weren't ultimately removed. And that is the difference. In fact, I would encourage you to read not just uh, Hebrews 9, but if you go into Hebrews chapter 10, the next chapter, it even draws a comparison um, between those two and how that Christ's sacrifice was the ultimate fulfillment. And and that's the beauty, Mike, of the old covenant versus the new covenant, that Jesus Christ actually, by his sacrifice, once for all, could remove sin, not simply cover it. Yeah, and this is why when the righteous in the Old Testament died, they went to a place called Abraham's bosom that Jesus spoke of. And the Bible says when Jesus died, he preached to those in captivity. The ultimate sacrifice, Jesus' blood, was shed for us. Mm -hmm. And so our sins are completely forgiven. And so that's what that means, Denise. I hope that answers it for you. We're all out of time, everybody, and I just want to encourage you to... to, um, Keep reading your Bible. Denny, stay in line. I'll send those out to you and get those to you. And so thanks again, John. Look forward to being back with you tomorrow. Until then, God bless you. you. To find out more about this ministry or to receive a copy of today's program, please call 1-800-357-4226 or write us to Everyman and Answer, P.O. Box 391, Twin Falls, Idaho, 83303. That toll-free number is 1-800-357-4226.
Subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes by searching for To Every Man and Answer in the iTunes store or visit us online at csnradio.com slash T-E-M-A. To Every Man and Answer is a production of CSN International, the Christian Satellite Network. The opinions expressed by our guests may or may not be those of CSN International or of this station. 